an inspired word. May the Lord himself add his blessing to it. Up until this point of Solomon's book of wisdom concerning Ecclesiastes and the meaning of life, we have noted that, that Solomon has looked at, at, at so many of, of what the world sets before us as, as having foundational principles of, of giving us purpose. He's found that they have all fallen flat. Whether it be scads of wealth, big families, a good reputation, goods, means, these all fall flat. And as he tells us in the first chapters, they're, they're like chasing the wind. They're, they're like herding cats. It's, it's ephemeral. It's, it's meaningless. We cannot find satisfaction in this fallen world. And that's really the focus of, of this hinge pin, these few verses between the, the first half and the second half. We cannot find purpose under the sun. In this fallen world, we live in a curse-filled world that, that offers us all sorts of, of options for finding value. But we can't find them. Everything that is proffered ends up falling flat. And as Solomon reminds us time and time again, in the end, no matter how many earthly blessings we have, we all end up in the same place. None of us get out of this place alive. We will all find ourselves at the front of the church at some point in the casket and being brought to the cemetery. That's life under the sun. That's the reality of, of this mortal life as Solomon has, has shown it to us. And we remember the story of Solomon, the truth of Solomon, uh, and all that he had. If there was anybody in history that, that we might say, if the things of this world could provide fulfillment, it would be found in Solomon. He had all the wealth. He had all the women. He had all the, the rulers of the world coming to him looking for advice. He had the reputation. He had a long life. He had a, a, a royal kingdom. But in the end, he says, it's, it's all chasing the wind. It leaves one cold. And throughout, of course now it comes loose. And throughout those first chapters, time and time again, he, he points us to the many blessings that God has given us. That he has given us a family and he has given us provision and he has given us the sunshine and, and he has given us so many things. He says, enjoy them as from the hand of the Lord. Eat and drink, because this is also an heritage of the Lord. We're not put on this world to, to despise it, but rather to enjoy it as, as something that comes from the God who is all good, who has created all things, and, and who does so abundantly provide for us. But if that's where you're looking for your satisfaction in the things of this world, you won't find it. But in these 
few verses as he transitions to the second part, he does point us once again to where we find satisfaction, where we find confidence, where we find our hope, where we find our only comfort in life and in death. That is in the good hand of God the Father, and of course through the working of the Son for our salvation. like to consider this evening under three points, these three verses. The glory of divine predestination. Something that, that kind of goes against the grain. We, as humans, want to be autonomous. We, we want to have the final say. We, we want to be heard. And yet Solomon points us to the fact that there's one above us. And we can take great comfort in that. The glory of divine predestination or or divine sovereignty, we we might even better say. Secondly, the the vanity of mortal presumption. When when we do lift ourselves up and, and, and insist on having our own way and pushing ourselves to the forefront, you see that that's that's folly, it's vanity. It has no substance, and in the end, it leaves us cold. And then thirdly and finally, the comfort of humble reliance. Finally, we're, we're brought to the point in these few verses where we're reminded that, that do we indeed want to enjoy the good things of this life and the good things of eternity? Then we do so by, by humbling ourselves before the wonder and the glory of the eternal God. And there we can find confidence, satisfaction, hope. The glory of divine predestination. Of knowing that there is one who is far above us, who is sovereign over all things, who has called all things, who has ordered all things, and in whom we can trust. Whatever one is, He has been named already, for it is known that he is man. Throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon in his great wisdom, and of course under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is continually giving us little hints of the beginning. He's bringing us back to the beginning of all things, to to the, the account in Genesis. And here, once again, I think he's doing precisely that. And he we're seeing an allusion then to uh, God's charge to Adam in the garden to name all of the creatures. He, he, he didn't put Adam in there as some sort of timeshare resort, but, but he sent Adam and established Adam in the garden so that he would work. And, and the work he did was the naming of the creatures. And I think as we, we look at what's really involved with the naming of the, the creatures, it's not like what we often think of of just assigning a name and calling it good. Like we might assign the name Spot to our dog or Fifi to a cat or whatever. Uh, But we we arbitrarily assign names to critters. That's not really what's going on here. In Genesis 2 verse 15, we see that the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. In just a couple of verses later, he describes what, what is involved in that tending and keeping of the garden. 
where we read, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. Involved in this naming of of the creatures is more than just assigning a name, but really learning them, knowing them, understanding them, taking dominion over the creation, being a steward of God's creation. And that's really what was in view when, when God gave this job to Adam to name the creatures of the earth. That. I believe that's what Solomon's picking up here in verse 10. Whatever one is, has already been named before. Whatever we have done, whatever great leaps mankind has made, whatever vast discoveries man has made, Solomon is saying, it's already been done. You're not teaching God anything. He is far above you think that, that you have gone to great lengths and you have discovered the formation of all that there is. You, you discover nuclear physics. You discover neurosurgery, for, for which I'm very thankful for. But God says, it's already been there. You did not discover anything on your own. You have named what has already been named. You have discovered what has already been Known, and that is by the Lord. Whatever one is has already been named. He's making a comprehensive declaration that there is one who is far above mankind, and this one is God who fully comprehends, fully understands, fully knows and cares for all of his handiwork. And everything that we learn, we learn from him. Now mankind, as we know full well, especially mankind who apart from God, at war with God, building of, of, of the Tower of Babel, mankind is quick to become too big for riches. We pretend, as Adam and Eve did with the forbidden fruit, that we can become like unto God, that, that we can become demigods ourselves. Mankind dares to declare God wrong in his creation of man and woman in the family, and, and, and declare that, no, that, that, that's hatred. There's, there's 53 genders or whatever it happens to be this week. We declare God wrong in the bringing forth of life and calling it a blessing. So, no, no, life is not a blessing. Life is to be taken or thrown away as we wish. We call God a liar. We, we, we think that we, we know more than him. In short, Solomon's reminding us of his conclusion. You're not God. We live in a fallen world, and as such, we live under the curse. We live in a, in a sin-ravaged world, a world that, that leaves us empty. Humanity is not God, and when we play God, we're, in essence, as he began this book, trying to herd the wind. It is fool's toil. We cannot name what God has named 
already. We cannot become who he is. Conversely, God is never limited. Man is limited, we see here. We think that we've discovered something new. It's already been. It, it, it's already established. You've done nothing more. We are limited. But God is not. There is no limit with the one who created, the one who formed, the one who established all things with his word in six days, all things that are were brought into being. He is not limited. That brings us great comfort. When we speak of, of the predestination, the sovereign decrees of, of God, we, we know that he is the one with all authority when we recognize that, that our place is in submission to him, don't try to usurp his authority. We can take great comfort there. <clears throat> Christian, are you struggling with fear? With health? With trauma? With any other thing? Anxiety? In all of these things, it has already been named. The Lord God who made heavens and earth knows and understands and furthermore Christ Jesus who was made as one of us was made fully man has suffered all the trials that we have and yet without sin whatever is has been named already we belong to the God who knows who is far above and has not lost track of any one of us know this and take comfort in this truth. God has already named. God fully understands your fear, your concern, your anxiety, your whatever fill in the blank. Because he's the one who has created you. He has been pleased to place you in the circumstances where he has. And not by accident, but for his glory and for your good. Our hurts and our pains and anxieties are real. We live in a fallen world. Throughout Scripture, we, we see trial upon trial upon God's people, and we know it from our own life. But it's not a surprise to the God who has named it already. Even those trials that scare us, even that final trial of life, which is death, has been defeated by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ when he rose from the dead. Consider the words through the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews 13. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Yes, there are trials, there are fears, there are a lot of things that, that, that cause us to stay awake at night. But we can take comfort in this. We belong to the God who is above them all. And our trials and our fears are not beneath His sovereign decrees. Consider that a God who with His word in created all things in six days, yet he is concerned himself with you, with me, with what keeps us awake at night. 
He knows us personally. And our names were upon the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ as he cried out upon the curse of his cross. It is finished. The payment has been made. The satisfaction has been fully paid. We're free. Not free to live as we please, but free to live for Him because we've been purchased for Him. This very same God who knows names and fully comprehends all things is still personally caring for your personal pains, your personal weakness, your personal fears. There, my friend, is perfect peace in the predestining hand of our loving and all why would I want to usurp his position when God so perfectly, so comprehensively cares for my every need? That leads us then into our second point. The vanity of mortal presumption. The folly. Why? Why would we place ourselves? Why would we lift ourselves up why would we presume upon him? Or as Solomon says, he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. And every time we offend the holiness and the righteousness of God, that's precisely what we're doing. We are contending with the one who is mightier than us. We're declaring ourselves to be God. My will is supreme to the will of the Lord is the presumptuous proclamation of each one of us every time we offend His holiness. We're not God. We cannot contend with Him who is mightier than us. Now there's often the temptation for mortal humanity to, to work around God we know God's law. We, we, we've heard the Ten Commandments every, every week. But let's find a workaround because well, I just want my own way. We don't want to live under the house rules of God who creates and sustains and, and who has named all things already. We want our freedom in this life while still retaining assurance of salvation. Give me my will, but your satisfaction. Oh, this is natural. But since the fall, natural is not good. We don't want what's natural. Natural is an animosity with God. Natural is an evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't want to puff ourselves up above the Lord, but we do time and time again. Solomon concludes this segment of wisdom literature with the sobering truth that mortal man will never prevail over the immortal. Man will never be superior to God. We must learn in our Christian walk to be not only satisfied, but happy in that. God is mightier than he. And that's where our comfort is. And so, so it's Vanity and its presumptuousness to place ourselves over it. <coughs> Verse 11 has, has a lot of variation in the, in the translations. I, I really do like 
the way your ESV translates it. The more words, the more vanity. <clears throat> and what is the advantage to man? Or the NIV actually does a very good job as well. <clears throat> the more words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? Have you ever found yourself in, in the presence of, of a very loquacious, very talkative person? And they, and they go on and on and on and on, it seems. And pretty soon you find yourself nodding along, maybe looking them in the eye, but not hearing the words anymore. That's what Solomon is saying. The more words, the less the meaning. It was a number of years ago I was attending an RCUS Senate meeting. and My knees were hurting me like they always do, or at least that's my excuse. So I stood up and leaned against the wall, and I was trying to just stretch myself out. Delegates were talking and, and debating a particular issue. Everything that had to be said had already been said, but not everyone said it yet. So, so we're listening to this multiplying of words going on and on. And, and the president noticed me standing up against the wall and, and mistook that for me seeking the floor. Mr. Grassman, you have something you want to add to this? I can't turn no, Mr. President, I totally zoned out. I, I wasn't listening to a thing anymore. I probably shouldn't have said that, but it was true. The more the words, the less the meaning. And, 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 and we know what that's like here in this world. But there's something even more insidious in view here, as Solomon puts it. That is the presumption of mankind who thinks that he can talk his way out of submitting to God. He knows the will of God. Everything that has been named already. He understands and comprehends the Ten Commandments. God's will for our life to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. But we, we seem to think that we can talk our way out of having to submit to those areas that well, just don't fit our preferences. That is bold. That is presumptuous. And as Solomon says, how is man better? It does us no good. Presuming authority does not improve our true standing. Presuming that our will is above the will of God does not help us in any way. Solomon could well be speaking of the crazy world in which we live here in the 21st century. As noted earlier, we live in a culture that has profound arrogance and presuming to know that which we cannot fathom. And yet we declare it with boldness and with confidence. We speak of those things of which we have no knowledge as a people. We make laws which are based upon the most absurd pretenses of science. Mostly fabricated, it seems. As Solomon rhetorically asks, how is humanity been improved with the presumptuousness of man placing himself over God? And the answer is, of course, he has not. We have not improved our standing. Our lifespans have not significantly changed. We still live in a world full of all sorts of sin, vice, and corruption. We still suffer and die. We still are not God, no matter how arrogant and presumptuous we, we may become. 
our state has not been improved. <clears throat> not at all. Reminded of James chapter 1. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. We belong to a God who has stated all things. We might try to presume upon His mercy, upon His grace. We might try to presume that we have rhetorical skills far beyond reality. But it does us no good. So we're called, directed, to humble ourselves. To, to be swift to hear. To hear the word of God. To, to incline our ears to it, even as God inclines his ears to our prayers. To desire his obedience. To, to put to death the old man. To bring to life the new man. And to keep our lips shut. To be slow to speak. That we might hear the word of our Lord. So finally bringing this all together in the third point. The comfort of humble reliance. For who knows what is good for man in life. All the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun. Solomon concludes with the final verse of the first half of, of his wisdom literature here in Ecclesiastes, seeking the true meaning of life. We have a beautiful direction to living submissively, humbly, peacefully under the rule of the Lord. The section does not conclude in futility, but points us to our sure hope in God. And ultimately, that sure hope in God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who knows what is good for man? Well, we've already seen that we don't. We don't know what's best for us. We don't have the power to. We, we don't know the name of it. And we don't have the authority or the power. But there is one who does. Who knows what is good for man? God does. We need exactly what he provides for us. And it oftentimes is not what we think we need. We think we need a good bank account, a, a healthy checkup from the doctor, and, and 120 plus years of life with a full family. Let's... Not normally what the Lord gives us, but he does give us precisely what we need because he and he alone knows what is good for man in this life. My grandmother, a simple lady in many ways, grew up in Ada, Michigan, the daughter of Dutch immigrants, was a profound theologian in her own way. I remember her as I was a little kid. She, she would talk about all the people say that, that we need rain or, or we have too much rain or the wind has to stop or, or this or that. So, Travis, we need exactly what God gives us. That's what we need. I've never forgotten that. Who knows 
what is good for men. What we think we do, but God does. We know we need exactly what He provides for us. Sometimes that means chastening. Sometimes that means a health scare. Sometimes that means trials in our in our homes. But we do belong to the one who knows what we need. Sometimes we need to be comforted because the trials of this life become overwhelming. And the Lord comforts us and, and gives us a, a respite. and He gives us peace. But no matter what we think we need, and no matter what we can rightly and appropriately pray to God for, we must always pray with the lest scriptural caveat, not my will, but thy will be done. Because we belong to the God who knows, who cares. And, and, and not only who knows the future, but speaks the future. Mankind would make a mess of things anyway. If I were in charge, I'd make a mess of things. and guaranteed you would too. One of us would demand sunshine for a picnic while the others demanded rain for, for the crops. One would bitterly inflict judgment while the other sought mercy. We don't know what's best. How often have you looked back upon your life and said, I so wanted this when I was 16, when I was 20, when I was 25, whatever. And the Lord closed that door. Whether it was that job or that spouse or or whatever it was. I was sure that that's what I wanted. But the Lord didn't give it to me. Now we look back and say, how blessed I am that I did not receive what I wanted back then. Because the Lord had dealt bountifully with me. God's way was so much better than what I wanted. Who can tell man what will happen in this vain life that passes like a shadow. You can look back and see what the Lord has done with with your life up to this point, whether it's six months or 80 years. You can look back and see that the Lord has guided every step. But what's going to happen tomorrow? How about next year? How about next decade? Who knows? Who can tell? Once again, not us. Last week, as we dealt with the first half of this chapter that we read in the beginning of this message, we noted that, that we write in pencil. We have to write in pencil. Because we belong to the God who, who knows so much, who is the director of our paths. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And I'm glad for that. I don't want to know what tomorrow will bring. But I am perfectly content and and comforted to know that God knows what tomorrow will bring. Or the next decade. Life is brief. All the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Even if, if we... Make it to triple digits in this life. With health in our mind, what a blessing that would be. It's still like a shadow. 
as he noted in earlier in chapter 6, if we're not living those triple digits in, in, in the peace and the comfort and, and, and gratitude towards God, then, then it'd be better if we were stillborn. Life is brief. No matter how many years, even Methuselah, 969 years. It's thousands of years ago. Life is brief. Life is here. Before you know it, we grow old and die. It's a sad commentary, but it's true. And that's what Solomon is, is bringing to our attention throughout this book. Young people, you have your entire life ahead of you. But guess what? It's not much. I know, what a downer. But it isn't. Live for the Lord today. Live for eternity today. Because we don't know about the days of our life. What we do know is they're like a shadow. Talk to the oldest person you know. Ask them, how does it seem like it was a long time since you were my age? They'll probably say it seems like just a couple years ago. Just yesterday I was a little kid and now I'm an old man. Life flies. It's fleeting. Don't take it for granted. It passes like a shadow. It's here and quickly forgotten. But God has numbered our days and He does know. And who knows what is good for man for eternity? Solomon doesn't directly ask that. But it is certainly an implication of all his questions about life here on this world. But how about forever? How about for eternity? He knows that as well. This is the whole point of the Christian life. That, that this vain life under the sun is not the end. The, the, the folly of, of this life is, is not the end. We live in a curse-filled world, but we're only pilgrims here and we're we're living for eternity. We're living for the Lord who has sent His Son to redeem us. You, child of God, are, belong to the One who has gone ahead to make a place for us. He has purchased salvation for you. It is His glory for which we must live because He is the One to whom we belong. It is God who all, has already named all things, who has sent His Son for our salvation, who has sent His Holy Spirit to, to show us our need for a Savior and point us to the foot of the cross. It's for His glory and for eternity with Him that we live. Who knows that? The God who has purchased salvation for us. That gives every child of God great comfort. Knowing our place. Our place is beautiful. Our place is precious. Because our place is in the hands of the all-powerful, glorious, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And in that hand, we are secure. Amen.